0: Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist here at Cygnos. This is Season 1, Episode 13. What do bar bouncers and insulin molecules have in common? And Ask Me Anything with Dr. William Dixon. Today we'll be answering questions from our Cygnus members in our first official AMA. Questions such as, what are normal glucose levels and how does fasting affect those levels? How do you use glucose graphs when your goal is weight loss, and are all spikes bad? What is insulin resistance, and can you explain the concept to me as if I were a five-year-old? What's calorie counting and how does it differ from the carb-insulin model? And why glucose spikes during exercise? As a reminder, Dr. Dixon's statements and opinions made on this show are his own and not necessarily the opinion of his employers. Any statements made by Dr. Dixon on this show are for educational purposes only. Those statements do not constitute medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is established by his participation on body signals. Should you have questions about your own health, you should consult with your own physician or your healthcare provider. Now on to today's show. Welcome to another episode of Body Signals. And our first official Ask Me Anything with Dr. William Dixon, fellow co founder here at Cygnos. You may remember Dr. Dixon from episode three, where we covered the basics of using glucose data for weight loss and wellness, or episode nine, where we discussed the use of apple cider vinegar as a means to lower your glucose. If you haven't listened to these episodes, they're two of our most popular, and I highly recommend them. Dr. Dixon, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. (laughs) Uh, Now on to the questions. So the first question we got, Doc, is I would love to learn more about glucose in relation to fasting. What would you expect to see during the different stages of fasting? And also, what's considered a normal spike after eating? So maybe we'll start there with the the normal spike after eating.
1: Sure. Um, So there is definitely a normal spike after eating. Eating And by normal, I mean what is a medically normal spike, right? So, in people who are not diabetic or pre-diabetic, uh, a normal after-meal or post-prandial is the medical words for it, uh, spike would be less than 140. Um, and so, that looks at a, a glucose rise of about 40 to 50. And so, in general, at, at two hours, if you're below 140, that's thought to be medically normal currently. Um, but there's, of course, a difference between medically normal and optimal or between being you know, predictive of disease and, and not being predictive of disease. So you can certainly have no diabetes or no prediabetes and spike up to 200, depending on what you ate, as you and I have both seen. And you can certainly have diabetes and have no glucose change after your meal of whatever, right? It just depends on the context and all that. So in general, we're looking, though, at less than 140.
0: So, so just to clarify, there, there's been a lot of research that kind of sets the limit or the line between where is what's considered normal and what is a disease state or a pre-disease state like prediabetes or diabetes. But as far as I know, there's not been a lot of research done on what's optimal. So uh, less than 140 after a meal is is considered normal from the American Diabetes Association, right? Is there a level we should be shooting for that's less than that?
1: I would say it depends to some degree on what your goal is, right? If you're, if you're carb loading because you're about to go on a marathon, you know, kind of as high as you can get, maybe that's going to be the, the answer. Um, but if you're looking at a glucose uh, level that can kind of indicate that what you ate was healthy in terms of it being maybe high protein and fiber and less uh, simple carbs. Um, then certainly you want your number to be lower. Uh, and some people eat very healthy meals and, and don't have any glucose uh, changes, as we both have seen as
0: well. And just in case, some of our listeners may not know much about glucose levels at all. We're talking about uh, milligrams per deciliter. Yes, this is sometimes for the American
1: people. <laughs> the, yes, the UK is uh, obviously a little bit different. Millimoles. Yes, yeah, some,
0: sometimes you hear it expressed in millimoles per deciliter too, correct? Yeah. In the U.S. medical system, we go by milligrams per deciliter. Okay, great. So um, let's go on to that next part of the question. When we get past what's considered normal for uh, after a meal, what about using glucose data to tell you about what's happening if you're doing a fasting or a restricted time window in your eating?
1: Sure. So... Uh, regarding like, fasting and glucose, just in terms of where your energy sources are coming from, maybe I'll start with that. Um, you use your exogenous glucose, so whatever you just most recently ate, and that, and that can last for around two to four hours uh, first. And I'm sure some of you have seen elevated levels for hours past that. Uh, I certainly have. And that's reflective of a meal that kind of has more energy than you need, right, if your glucose levels are high for a long time. But around hours... Right, so- sorry, go for it.
0: So any, any uh, snack or, or meal, anytime you eat something, when you say exo- exogenous glucose, any type of carb or sugar you're eating um, is something that's going to affect your, your glucose level.
1: Yes, outside the body, food, energy, glucose. Yeah, got um, it. So then around hour three, your body will start to use glycogen, which is the stored glucose, to supplement the food that you're digesting or have digested. Uh, as you're starting to get through your glycogen stores, your body starts doing something called gluconeogenesis, which is... Before the,
0: we get there, before sure. we get there, so the um, the glycogen, it's stored mostly in your liver, right? That's like the the main place. But you also have some stored in muscle tissue too, right? Yes, a good amount okay, stored in, in
1: muscle, muscle tissue. Okay. Um, the liver store, you know, the muscle stored ones are, are generally used locally, and the liver ones are generally circulated more, right, because you're not burning that much glucose in your liver. Okay. Great.
0: Got it. Sorry I interrupted. So you were about to say about um, uh,
1: gluconeogenesis. Yeah. So gluconeogenesis is the process of making glucose uh, from energy, from stored fat and protein. Um, so if uh, if you are starving for a long time, for example, um, you will take the fat and some protein that you have and turn that into glucose, which is why it's rare. Even if someone is uh, you know, starving for days at a time, their glucose level is never going to go or won't go to zero. It'll be probably on the lower side. Um, but you're still making glucose because your body needs it for energy. You also will start to burn uh, broken-down fats as well, and that's a state of ketosis that you've probably heard about. Um, and... Um, But your body uses both of those for energy.
0: Got it. And when you say ketosis, different than ketoacidosis, a lot of people confuse those two terms. One's medical emergency, right? And the other is associated with the keto diet. That's been really popular. Correct. Got it. Okay, so now... um, Let's just walk through an example of someone who's doing what, what I do. I do time restricted eating. I do like an eighteen-six, where I'm off 18 hours and I'm eating for six hours. When I stop eating, my body's going to go through these stages. So, from as you mentioned, from hours two through four, I probably will uh, be burning whatever I had eaten in that meal, that exogenous glucose that you mentioned, right? And then after that, then my body will probably turn to the liver to get some glycogen stores that are converted to, to glucose. And then after that, it's probably going to use fat, but doesn't have to really get to muscle, right? Because I've got enough fat. You know, I I know personally, I do have enough fat to, to get me through the night and probably several days, if not weeks. That's correct, right?
1: Yes. And again, it's not an A, then B, then C, your body is smart, it uses A, and then some of B, and then as B is, you know, going up or down, then they start tapping into C. Um, But that's the general kind of Uh, And that's a a really
0: important point because I think a lot of us oversimplify what's actually happening. And that's important to know that your body is not doing these things in a very ordered sequential way. The human body is much more complex than that and is taking energy from different sources. But this is like a basic way to explain uh, the chronology of what happens in terms of how your body uh, burns glucose when you're not eating. Yes, Excellent. Let's move on to uh, another question, which um, someone wrote in and says, when we're looking at our glucose and we're trying to optimize for weight loss, what are we aiming for? Are we aiming to see a flat line in our glucose graph? And are any spikes bad? And, you know, not even just spikes up, but what about when we, um, our glucose seems to drop too low?
1: Yeah, so for me, I think the two most useful numbers that I look at are what is the glucose level when you eat and what is the glucose at the top of a larger spike. Uh, Obviously, your body will have some physiologic variation. That's normal and that's okay. Um, But if you're eating uh, consistently at a glucose level of 110 or 100 or higher than that, uh, I think you can ask yourself the question, are you actually hungry? Are you bored? Are you in a social situation where it's just expected that you're eating? Um, because usually that number is kind of reflective of the fact that your body has enough either stored or recently eaten energy kicking around to kind of stay on top of what you need, um, unless you're obviously uh, being physically active at that time. So that's one thing I look at, and you know if you are, I'm gonna go for it, but you know, think to yourself, why am I, why am I eating right now? My body's not saying I'm ready for food. So that's one of the mind body connections that you can start to make.
0: Excellent. And so here's, here's a, another way of looking at this. I've seen this question asked a number of different ways from our members. And one thing that they'll ask is, you know, what about if I see a spike that might be related to stress and we're going to get to this later in terms of uh, what if I see a spike from exercise, it's really the spikes that you see after you eat something that you should be concerned with if your goal is to lose weight, correct? So things that might spike your glucose that are not related to what you've just eaten may not be as important.
1: Uh, if you're thinking specifically for weight loss, then yes, diet's going to be the most important aspect of that. But if you look at your whole body wellness right sometimes a spike from stress might be more important to your mental well-being that day than any of the things that you ate right but certainly in the long term if you're looking specifically for weight loss we are thinking about glucose spikes and how they relate to what you just ate and then let that you reflect on was that a a healthy meal or not and so that's what i use my big spikes for you know sometimes i'll have a kind of a larger spike where if i'm at work and i you know, have a piece of candy or whatever and I have a, a relatively larger spike, I'm like, okay, well I can, you know, that was worth it for me, that's okay. But if I have a big spike where I know I just weigh over eight uh in an burger and a milkshake, you know, for my purposes now that I've kind of I'm at more of my maintenance uh zone, so, as it were, that's you know, I can do that every once in a while. Um and that's okay. But certainly if you're actively trying to lose weight, then you can look at that and reflect and say, okay, well was that more energy than I needed at that time? And what were the things that drove me to do that? Um, and again, that's okay sometimes, but if you're losing weight, you have to be consistent with some behaviors.
0: Okay, got it. Now, if, you, um, if you're healthy, you don't have diabetes, type 1 or type 2,
1: and your glucose goes low, should you be concerned? So the, the definition of hypoglycemia, uh, it requires three things. One is low blood sugar. Two is symptoms related to the low blood sugar. Um, So some people that's lightheaded or queasy or nauseous or feeling a little shaky. Um, And then three is for those symptoms to resolve once your blood sugar goes back up. And so that's the true definition of hypoglycemia. And it's a pretty rare thing to have that in the absence of people being on any medicines that are meant to cause low blood sugar. There are definitely some pretty rare diseases that can cause it. Some people will notice it kind of a a reactive hypoglycemia where after a very large spike, their sugar will crash in response to a big insulin surge. And some people see that after the oral glucose tolerance test, for example. And I've had that and you can feel pretty awful. Um, But in terms of if you are on the lower end um, and you don't have any symptoms and it's generally not something that's concerning, we, we do like to look at the lower glucose levels, because for some people, that is a trigger for them to eat, and in some cases, that's even a trigger to overeat. So if you are have just had a big spike and crash for something, uh, your body might be telling you that you're hungry, even if you have just already eaten something, and there was a study that actually showed that, that people who ate a breakfast that causes a big spike and then a crash ate sooner and more calories than those who had a more stable breakfast.
0: So, another argument for why keeping your glucose levels as stable as possible could help with um with things like overeating if you have that big meal spike and then have the corresponding drop in your glucose afterwards
1: All right and again, there's a million reasons why people do different things, and glucose is one piece of the piece of the puzzle
0: Got it. Okay, let's move on to the next question. I love this question. Uh, We've gotten it a lot. Someone phrased it in in the best way. They said, explain insulin resistance to me like I'm five.
1: So I I spent enough time on Reddit back in the day, although I rarely go any more than I've seen this phrasing before. Um, So I'll start by saying that the scientific understanding regarding insulin and weight Uh, Gain, loss, maintenance has been evolving quite a bit, and this has been a fascinating thing for me to look into over the last few years and try to wrap my head around. Uh, So you obviously need insulin, right? The absence of any insulin production is type 1 diabetes, and the absence of a cellular response to insulin is type 2 diabetes. uh, And that over time might lead to a relative kind of absence of production of, of insulin, which is why some type 2 diabetics will be on insulin. But I'll try to explain insulin resistance like you're maybe 21, if that's okay, uh, instead of Great, five. Right. <laughs> because
0: that, yeah, that was pretty complicated, that explanation. So explain it to me like I'm 21 and have no medical background whatsoever.
1: Okay. So this is my attempt at that. So think of insulin like it is a bouncer at your favorite bar. And the bar are your fat cells uh, or your adipocytes. And dietary glucose, fat, and sometimes protein are the patrons they're just trying to get into your bar so if you have an empty bar the bouncer is going to easily let in more people they have no problem with it they want people in the bar great as your bar fills up the bouncer is going to start slowing people down some people can still get in but you might have a line that uh that starts outside the bar right so the bouncer is letting some people in but they're slowing that down and then maybe there are so many people in line that they are all starting to push on the bouncer and say, hey, bouncer, let me in. And so the bouncer goes, oh, man, I need backup, gets another bouncer there, some more bouncers there. So this is insulin building up outside your cell, trying to both protect the, the cell from more or protect the bar for more people getting in, uh, resisting that outside pressure. But also you need more bouncers there to kind of facilitate this, this logjam. Okay, so then you have all sorts of people lined up outside getting angry causing all sorts of trouble. High blood spikes, hyperglycemia, damage to your vessels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then some bouncers might get confused and not even let people leave the bar because there's so many people outside, they don't want anything there. So that's kind of how some people will talk about your energy being trapped inside your cells. So if this happens night after night, what happens? You're going to slowly start to open more bars you're going to start with more bouncers outside your bars, right? And, you know, if you look at kind of on a more population level, some bars or some people will just start with three bouncers instead of one. Some bars might get more bouncers when they're only half full. Uh, Some bars might just hire a bunch of bouncers around Halloween time because they know there's going to be a big crash of people, right? So some people are just naturally more... Uh, prone to having problems with insulin sensitivity regardless of the size of the fat cells or how many they have, right? Which is part of genetics and epigenetics and your environment and all that stuff. Uh, and some people are more prone to just having problems when people are running riot in the streets, right? So some people are just going to have <laughs> metabolic problems sooner regardless of the size of the bar. And that's not fair, but that's just facts. Um, so how do you solve this problem, I guess, is the, the answer to this question, right? You you have to kind of affect all of them, right? You get people out of the line, you so the bar gets emptier, and you can get rid of the bouncers, right? And the ways that you do this practically are decreased food intake, exercise, medicines, leading to weight loss, and then obviously there are other things that, uh, comp- or that compromise those efforts um, since your body has this very uh, impressive physiologic response to losing weight. Um, so then addressing the changes that happen as you lose weight uh, as well both in terms of um you know problems with thyroid problems with leptin and uh problems with your sympathetic tone going down so doing things like check your thyroid and then actually interestingly uh weight training is a is a really good kind of buffer to keep you losing weight
0: yeah weight training uh, and let's just take a, a a quick aside i think you just went to the gym and did a little resistance training too right Read just before recording.
1: I did a uh, a boot camp, one of those. Uh, so I'm a I'm a Peloton fan, as you know. It's a yeah. combination of running and then kind of floor work. But yeah,
0: so it's body weight. So you're getting some resistance workout. Yeah, in and, there with a the body do, weight.
1: I do over the last couple of years have started weight training uh, a lot more than I than I have <laughs> previously.
0: This point, I think, is one of the least discussed and most effective ways of helping you on a weight loss or, or wellness journey. I, I also started weightlifting just recently, haven't done it in forever, and uh, realized some things right away. One is that as you start to build muscle mass, your, your uh, metabolic rate, your resting metabolic rate goes up because you've got more muscles burning more, more calories, um, needing more energy. And then on top of that, I've also noticed that my glucose levels have started to decrease. I'm not sure what the mechanism is there, but um, one of the things I think everyone should think about is incorporating at least some resistance training into their exercise, be it body weight like you get at a boot camp, simply doing some push-ups, or other body weight resistance, or maybe even doing some weightlifting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, interestingly, so I um, when I lost all uh, the 15 or 20 pounds that I did last year when I first started out. Um, I went to back to the gym. You know, I didn't have a, a bench press or a squat rack or anything in where I was uh, doing my COVID quarantine. And I had, like, noticeably lost some of, the, of my strength, which is not uncommon in people who are losing weight, right? You lose weight in the form of fat, and you lose weight in the form of muscle. And so a lot of people weight training during your weight loss will actually, it might slow your weight loss down in terms of your weight because you're actually gaining muscle. So that's called body composition. And so some people will not lose as much weight, but they'll have a significant change in their body composition. So you might see their waist size decrease a lot or their fasting blood sugar go down quite a bit, all reflective of better health without it necessarily being shown on the scale. Yeah, I experienced that exact same phenomenon. My weight was going up, but my
0: clothes were looser, and I used that as my motivation in the short term. And then over time, my weight started to come down as I burned more fat. But yeah, it's part of the body recomp. So I guess in total, what you're trying to say is we need to get people out of the bars and to the gym. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, I think it depends on what you're doing at the bar and what you're doing at the gym. (laughs) But uh, that seems to be a healthy, reasonable choice, yeah.
0: And then for maybe a future AMA, I'm thinking that uh, glucagon is, I guess, like last call at the bar. Yeah. People, people start coming out,
1: right? Everybody's empty. The bar's empty, kicking everybody out on the street, yeah. There you go.
0: All right, on to our next question. When, do the, when does the hormone response chain of glucose, insulin, cortisol... And optimizing those run against the laws of thermodynamics. And I think the person asking this question was referring to the first law of thermodynamics, which is matter or energy is neither created nor destroyed, which usually is a way to talk about um, counting calories as a way of losing weight, right?
1: Right. Yeah. And so this is a a great question because this is the crux for a lot of people. Um, It's kind of a bit of like the diet wars uh, question is, is it counting calories or is it hormones and people are kind of on either side. But let me start with a story. So I was working in the ICU and we were talking to a son about his mother's care. And he was asking tons of like why questions. Well, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And we didn't necessarily have an answer to some of these questions. He was getting like very visibly frustrated And my attending suddenly stopped and asked him, he was like, you're an engineer, aren't you? And it just kind of like, everyone was like, oh, of course. Uh, And of course he was. And uh, my attending was really able to reframe, attending is like the supervising doctor, was able to reframe the conversation. He was like, look, people are not black box machines where everything makes sense, right? You cannot input X and expect Y. And this is true in the ICU. And this is true with... Weight loss, right? People are dynamic. In fact, the more you input X and expect Y, you might actually get less of Y, which is not fair. So what you'll see is some people, the more they calorie restrict, the harder it is for them to lose weight to some degree because their body starts shutting down as a compensation for that, right? Um, so you've probably heard something along the lines of like calories always count, but counting calories isn't always the best strategy, right? Uh, and I think that's true. But bodies, people aren't black boxes where you can input some calories and expect a specific outcome over time, right? So the, the belief for a long time was that if a pound of fat is 3,500 calories, all you have to do is restrict that per week or whatever, and then, if you wait seven years, you will disappear, right? Which, which is not, that's not how it works. <laughs> At some point, your body uh, says. I got to believe there's <laughs> a law of physics that would keep that from happening, yes.
0: but I'm not sure which one it is.
1: Um, your body fights back, right? And so, and some people do a great job with caloric restriction and uh, macro counting. And then they'll have these kind of maintenance phases, or we talked, you know, we talked about flexible diet in the, pack, in the past where you. Um, you can kind of bring up your calorie count per day a little bit, so your body can kind of recalibrate, and then you start to go down again. And that is definitely an effective uh, way of weight loss for some people. Uh, we aren't against that. In fact, we you know we have a both a calorie and macro counting part of uh, Signos, um, but a lot of people find that it's too restrictive, or it's too um, it kind of leads to unhealthy behaviors if they break their calorie count for the day then they'll feel like they failed and and then they kind of will go on a binge um, or and they just can't sustain it. So that for some people that doesn't work. And obviously I would say for most people that doesn't work because that's the advice most people have gotten for the last however many years in terms of weight loss is eat less and move more for calories, right? Um, and as you discussed with Dr. Kolawad, uh, your body – does not like feeling like it's starving, so it fights back, right? You decrease your energy expenditure per day, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, it it goes into your brain, your neurohormones as well, right? Your brain is actually telling you in response to the signals that your fat cells are sending out, we need more food, we need more food, and so that's miserable. So you need to find a reasonable and sustainable strategy that, is something that you can sustain and that leads to weight loss over time. Uh, So that's why we like focusing on glucose, energy, and then like a more mindful relationship with food, right? We've both talked about how watching your glucose curves pull you into a better relationship uh, with your food and with your body. Oh, that's why I feel super hungry right now. That's why my run was so hard. I didn't fuel properly. And it gives me you know a minute-by-minute quantifiable reason why I'm feeling the way that I do. Um yeah so it gives you like a feedback loop a constant feedback loop. So if I
0: overeat and I feel really bad I can look at that graph and say oh now I understand how that overeating affected my glucose.
1: Exactly. And or, you know, my, I'm stressed about XYZ, you know, I stress walking to a shift, I have a glucose bump, and then it comes back down, and then I'm hungry, and I eat the candy that's lying around, or the donuts that someone's always bringing into the hospital somehow, right? Even uh, in the in the break room, we'll say.
0: Um, yeah. There's so many advantages to looking at glucose. Of course, you want to keep an eye on calories, the number of calories you're eating. We're not saying that you don't, but there are so many hidden gems, at least I've found, things like the value of sleep in helping you keep your glucose levels somewhat stable or how stress can affect them, like you mentioned, that uh, the, this arms you with the ability to make these small changes in your life that are more aimed at lifelong changes to either lose the weight or get fit and keep the weight off or keep fit for a lifetime, not just a quick fix.
1: Exactly. And then there is some stuff we can't explain. Um, there is a study that, and I may misattribute mis- this a little bit, but basically took the same caloric restricted diet and for a randomized controlled manner uh, gave people you know, 700 of those calories at breakfast, a certain amount at lunch, and then uh, 300 at dinner, I think. And some did the opposite, right, 300 at breakfast, 500 at lunch, let's say, and 700 at dinner. And they had different results, right? So, same calories, just apportioned at different times, with a different outcome, right? So, I think, obviously, that's I think that's fascinating. There is more to weight than calories um, in and calories out, but calories obviously are important too.
0: Absolutely. Let's move on to another question. We kind of got a little bit, uh, we got to this a little bit in the previous question, but someone wrote in and asked, in order to exercise to blunt a a glucose spike, do you need to exercise at 75% of your max heart rate? And then spikes after exercise, what do you do about that? Um, This person experienced some really um, huge spikes after a high intensity, I'm guessing interval training workout.
1: I think it was hockey practice which is awesome I have never been Was it hockey practice? <laughs> I've never <Wow. laughs> I've never played uh hockey well I I think I should. Well, you think
0: about a lot of team sports and it really kind of mimics um, hit workouts or high intensity interval workouts, right? Cuz you you're you're charging down the court or you're skating down the ice and then
1: you have a brief break and then you're skating back. So, yeah, there's a lot of like up and down. My ability to play hockey is unfortunately limited by my inability to skate. So, I would be <laughs> yeah, at a pretty I'm low, right with you, Doc. A low intensive uh <laughs> Uh, energy during that whole time. Um, yeah, we, we'd be the last two to be picked for a nice yeah, hockey Although I could probably play goalie if all that required was standing in front of the goal and hope they hit you. That's true. I do you even need skates. You yeah. just need those big pads you can <laughs> slide around on, right? Uh, exactly. So we talk a lot about using your glucose spikes to kind of reassess or assess what you've just eaten in terms of quantity, quality of food, and then ways to focus on foods that keep your glucose stable and keep you... Uh, Feeling full, right? So, in that context, if you look at a lower preprandial glucose or before eating and a stable postprandial glucose, if that's reflecting a, a good meal that you ate, that's good. Uh, for some people, we, you know, an accidental or, or on purpose spike, we say is a good trigger to try and get in some exercise and bring that back down. Um, but the difficulty or duration of exercise is dependent on the spike as well as what you are capable of in terms of your exercise capacity. And that's why we kind of do the little exercise test to see uh, within 20 minutes at a certain heart rate, like how how much, what your glucose change is going to be. Um, so if you can find a little bit of motivation or time to go for a walk or jog or do some squats as we, or you know, kettlebell swings or whatever, uh, that always is going to help your physical activity kind of go up throughout the day. Um, so you don't necessarily have to exercise, right? We don't, we try not to mandate anything, right? Everything is flexible. Uh, some glucose spikes are okay. Some days of not doing any exercise is okay. But if you were looking for a target, right? Like a lot of times people will see that an exercise at a certain zone is the right amount of, uh, effort to keep your glucose at a certain level or bring it back down to a certain level without going so hard that your body is going, Oh man, something's going on and releasing a bunch of stored glucose.
0: Right. But if it does, like we mentioned earlier, we're mostly concerned with those glucose spikes related to um, exogenous um, glucose, so what you're eating. If you happen to be working out really hard and spike because of it, uh, won't your body just replenish um, that glucose that was burned through either fat cells or from glycogen stores in the liver, and it maybe isn't as much a concern or not a concern at all versus looking at the food-related spikes.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. But I'll also say that for some people, doing a super intense workout with a high spike followed by a crash is going to lead people to eat things uh, in response to that, right? So some people might, uh, you know, we don't ever want to talk about food as a uh, reward or exercise as punishment for eating, Right. But some people might have those hypoglycemic events in response to an intense exercise, and then their body is saying, "Hey, you know, you just went crazy. Here's you need to go eat something." And again, your whatever you're eating is likely to contribute more calories to your diet than however much exercise you can do. Right? So, I've done that. I've done that in my earlier days.
0: Like, yeah, work out really hard, and then just ate a ton thinking i hey, i deserved it but it, maybe it was really my body driving me to eat more because of that that um dip that happened after the spike exactly
1: so i i, uh, I wanted to this is something i've been wanting to bring up but i listened to the podcast that you did with Near twice uh a week already because i think it's so awesome but one of the Thank you. one of the additions to um so the willpower studies, which are which are really great, and which actually I remember reading uh, about 15, 20 years ago, and actually was one of the things that brought made me so interested in medicine and psychology because um, I thought that was so fascinating that the that willpower was an exhaustible resource. I, I like I, I totally bought into that. Um, but before uh, Carol Dweck's studies, that kind of said, well, it's it's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? You. If you believe that you have no willpower, then you have no willpower. Um, They had actually thought that, uh, and I still think that there probably is a reasonable component of uh, glucose as part of that regulation. So the study, the original study where they said people have no willpower, they had a cookie, and you could either eat it or not. I think they said, you know, don't eat it. Uh, And then they gave you a math problem that is that was impossible to solve and they would look at who ate the cookie and then how long they would spend on the math problem and the people who didn't eat the cookie spent a lot less time on this impossible math problem they were like look you can run out of willpower because the people who had to expend willpower on not eating the cookie then didn't work as hard on the math problem because they didn't have as much willpower which i think is i mean it's not an unreasonable interpretation and i can saw why they went there But then some people were like, well, what if the reason that people work so hard on the math problem was because they had this cookie and they were like, hell yeah, let's get it. And then (laughs) uh, just went and tried to work on the math problem for as long as possible, which I, you know, and I think so. And I think if you read um, Carol Dweck's uh, book, Growth Mindset, then it goes into a little bit more detail. But as a kind of an interesting aside, there is a there's some extra glucose in there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I want to talk about when we talk about exercise and I don't think this is mentioned enough, although it's starting to there's a, a I think a groundswell of discussion about um non-exercise activity thermogenesis also called NEAT, that just movement throughout the day, be it if you, you know, work on a job where you're walking more than being at a desk or taking the stairs versus taking an escalator elevator, all of that uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis makes up a big chunk of the calories that we use every day. And we shouldn't just think about exercise. We should probably think about just trying to incorporate more movement throughout our day, going for walks, uh, maybe you can take a meeting or a phone call on a walk versus just sitting at a desk. I found one study that, uh, they studied people that fidget a lot and they, um, they looked at the amount of calories that these fidgeters were burning and they were burning like 800 to a thousand calories more than people who were more sedentary and didn't fidget. And these is just people that like kind of bounce their leg up and down or just happen to have a lot of movement, a lot of, um, uh, arm expression or hand expressions when they talk uh, burn a lot more calories. So I I think if nothing else, you should be exercising. But, you know, try and incorporate some more movement throughout your day and you'll be surprised at how far that will take you
1: i uh i am a fidgeter i I actually i i didn't ever put this together but when i eat a big meal i fidget way more which i think is fascinating right so i'm a big postprandial fidgeter and i think that that must be what my body is doing is turning up my uh non-exercise activity thermogenesis or neat as some people call it um to kind of help burn that off so that's that's nice um there's a, there's a great randomized control trial out there. This is a kind of a famous study. So, they took two groups of hotel room attendants or like housekeepers and uh, by hotel, split them into different groups. And they told one group, hey, you're actually doing a ton of exercise every day. You just don't know it. You know, if you're scrubbing the bathroom, it's, you know, this many calories an hour. If you're folding sheets or doing laundry or whatever, it's this many calories an hour. And then the other group, they just didn't tell anything. And the group that was told how much exercise they were doing ended up kind of paying attention to it and was like, man, I am doing a bunch of exercise. And maybe they were taking the stairs on top of that and maybe they were, you know, working a little bit extra harder or or who knows what exactly. But they uh, just over not a very long period of time lost weight, their BMI went down, their waist circumference went down, and their blood pressure went down just from kind of – they didn't do anything. They didn't, you know, they didn't say here is your exercise training, right? They didn't tell you change your diet or whatever. Just being aware of the what you're doing, um, that being healthy or not, is some of what uh can help you be healthier, right? It helps motivate you. And so that's what we look at too, with your, you know, why we do the exercise test and say, like, hey, it doesn't actually require that much uh output in terms of doing a little bit of good, right? Uh for your day. And so, um, And so I thought that was fascinating. But uh, in terms of uh, focusing on NEAT for weight loss, it can definitely boost your daily calder expenditure a little bit. Um, But your body's pretty smart. So, again, I wouldn't focus on you can't fidget your way to to weight (laughs) loss Uh, because a lot of people who are big fidgeters will kind of naturally decrease their energy expenditure elsewhere. So your body's kind of too smart for that. But certainly, you know, if you're, if you're a big fidgeter, um, that is something that's maybe your body is reacting to kind of the, the overfeeding that you might have done, right? So, that's maybe more where, where it plays in. Yeah, but bottom line, let's get some more
0: movement in our day. Yeah. It, uh, it definitely helps.
1: And, and, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but it doesn't require a ton of movement to show metabolic benefit, right? It's maximum output uh, or maximum energy Maybe ten times, or, or excuse me 10 minutes, three times a week uh, is you know, maybe the minimum of what's required. Um, and that's maximum for you, right? So you don't need to be running a marathon three times a week, right? Um, sometimes it just doesn't take that much.
0: Okay, and unfortunately, that's all we have time for on today's show. We'll get to more of your questions on our next AMA. Doc, thanks for all the great insights. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today on Body Signals. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Cygnos Health. And if you're interested in becoming a Cygnos member, go to Cygnos.com on the web to request early access. Until next time.